Welcome to the Let Christy Take It podcast. Let Christy Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on Instagram and irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish bespoke furniture needs. On this week's episode, Derek and Kieran are joined by Grammy Award winner Billy Vera. Billy is an American singer, actor, writer, and music historian whose musical career spans decades in many different musical genres, from R&B to soul and country to rock and roll. Often compared to the vocal stylings of the great blues singers, he remains one of the most respected vocalists of our time. Billy scored an international hit with the timeless classic At This Moment, which was used in the TV show Family Ties. His songs have been recorded by artists such as Ricky Nelson, Dolly Parton, Bonnie Ray, Robert Plant, Fats Domino, Tom Jones and Michael Bublé. Billy appeared in the cult film Buckaroo Banzai, Oliver Stone's The Doors, Blake Edwards' Blind Date, as well as various TV shows including Wise Guy and Baywatch. Let Christy Take It are proud to bring you the most famous person most people have never heard of, Billy Vera. What did you think I would do at this moment When you're standing before me with tears in your eyes Trying to tell me that you Have found you another And you just don't love me no more Billy Bear, singer, songwriter, actor, voiceover artist, author, all-around good guy. Welcome to the Christy Take a Podcast. Thank me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is going to be the one episode that Mark is going to have so much fun editing. Oh, you're yeah, We're <laughs> delighted to have you, Billy. We really, really are. Although born in California, you grew up in New York. What are your memories of growing up in New York in the 50s? Oh, so many, so many. I got there when I was about, um, I guess, seven years old. So my mother was a singer on the Perry Como show. And my dad, uh, after quickly got a, a job as a radio announcer, television announcer on NBC, National Broadcasting Company. So, you know, I was around people who earned their living with their voice all the time, and my parents. And uh, little by little, you know, when I was about uh, 12 or 13 or 11, I guess, uh, rock and roll hit. And that kind of changed my life. You know, I, I saw Chuck Berry on American Bandstand with Dick Clark. And I said, I want to be him. <laughs> As a young kid, did you understand what your parents did for a living? Like if some parents, some, maybe your friend's parents were lawyers or, or accountants, I don't know. But did you understand that they had this kind of special job? Oh, from day one. Yeah. I mean, even before we moved to New York, uh, we, we lived in Cincinnati for five years. And my mom was on her television and radio station there as well. And my parents were both on that station. So I, I knew because, you know, I, I, I got to go to work with them sometimes. And, uh, and, and so I'd, I'd be around the radio station and the TV station. And I'd, you know, see all that action going on. It was pretty, pretty interesting, even for a little boy. You mentioned Chuck Berry. But how, how young were you when, you know, music could have hooked you? I, I think, uh, well, I've always liked music. The first record I ever heard that, that it really excited me was uh, Nat King Cole, the King Cole Trio. 
a song called the Frim Fram Sauce. And I just, my, my, one of my parents brought that record home and I just played it over and over and over. I was six years old. And so I, I always loved, you know, that music. And Billy, you eventually became part of a band, Billy Vera and the Contrasts, and you got some so fame with songs like uh, My Heart Cries. Uh, what was it like getting that level of interest uh, being so young? Oh, it was pretty great. Um, you know, the first song I ever took to a music publisher uh, got recorded by Ricky Nelson. It became a hit, Mean Old World. Yeah. I said, wow, what an easy business this is. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> it, was a, it was a good year before I had another song recorded, and that became a hit. Yeah. I wrote it with a fellow named uh, Chip Taylor. Uh, who wrote Wild Thing and Angel of the Morning, and he became sort of my songwriting mentor. In fact, he went to my same high school, but four years previous, and he had a brother who became a, a great actor named John Boyd. Wow. So yeah. anyway, the first song that Chip and I wrote, Make Me Belong to You, became a hit record for a Detroit soul singer named Barbara Lewis, Make Me Belong to You. So we were... We were really in the business. You know, we, we were staff songwriters for a music publishing company. And we had little tiny offices next to each other. His office was bigger than mine because <laughs> he was more established. Uh, were so you in the Brill building, Billy? No, no, that was down the street. We were in the Cool building, which was <laughs> 1650 Broadway. <laughs> and everybody mentions the Brill building because it's an easy name to remember. But I think uh, 1650 had more... Uh, you know, cool, cool uh, offices. You know, we had uh, Scepter Records was in there. You know, uh, we had uh, uh, Aldon Music. You know, which became Screen Gems Music, which had you know a bunch of great writers in there. So, you know, sixteen fifty was just you know one block away. So you had all this action going on. In fact, up the street a little further from us was 1697, just above the Ed Sullivan and later David Letterman Theater. That was kind of a crummy building, but uh, uh, but they had sort of lower rung uh, record people there and music people there. And Billy, when did you decide, I mean, that was an easy transition, like you wanted to be a singer, you wanted to sing your songs. Did you, did you kind of resist just writing songs or did you find it easy? And then how did you get back into you know, being in a band, being a singer, or was it something you did all the time while you were writing the songs? I was doing both at the same time. In fact, by the time I got, I got my job at April Blackwood Music as a staff songwriter, um, I was playing with the band six nights a week. And then I'd, I'd get up around nine o'clock in the morning and take a train down to Manhattan. And I'd write songs or try to write songs all day. And the process was, uh, you know, either I'd try to write songs by myself or with Chip, or maybe our boss would come in and he'd knock on the door and say, oh, the Shirelles are going to record this week, see if you can come up with something for them, or Tony Bennett's going to come up, see if you can write a song for Tony. <laughs> so we would do that, and then we'd make demos. Um, and then the publisher's job was to take them around to record companies and producers and the artists themselves, if possible. And Billy, how hard is that to write, to be sitting in a room? And are you under pressure? Is, is there expectations? Like, oh, do we want six songs a day? You know, if you're writing something from the heart, is it, is it, are you just left be? 
No, it was it was not not a lot of pressure at all. Uh, they knew that that if there was pressure, that people couldn't write under pressure. A lot of people couldn't write under pressure. Some people thrived that way. I I felt for me it was if I saw a light at the end of the tunnel, then I felt that 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 made me more able to write. You know. Yeah. And how did it feel to have, like, as you said, Ricky Nelson and Fats Domino, amongst others, how did it feel to have hear those guys singing your songs? Oh, pretty great. Actually, with Ricky, you know, just this shows you how stupid I was at, at that young or naive I was at that age. I had written the song with this new girl singer in mind named Dion Warwick. I liked the way she sang. And so I, I sort of aimed it at her. And, uh, and, and I told that to the publisher. And uh, a couple of weeks later, he called me back and said, well, I got a record on your song. I said, oh, which, which, how'd you, how, did it, how did it go? Who'd you get? And I figured it was just Joe Blow, you know, somebody I never heard of, or maybe a B-side of a Joe Blow record. He said, no, 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 I got you Ricky Nelson, man. I said, Ricky Nelson, he's white. He can't <laughs> sing my song, you know. He said, you ungrateful little putts. He said, don't you understand? Ricky's going to do the song five weeks in a row on the Ozzie and Harriet show. And you're going to make a bunch of money from that alone. And, and everything he makes sells records. I said, oh, OK. And I heard the record. And I liked it because I, I actually had been a Ricky Nelson fan, especially a fan of his guitar player, James Burton, who was who I, I later got to to use on a couple of recording sessions and many, many years later. Why can't we be like storybook children in a wonderland in a wonderland when the things play for tomorrow We would be if only we were storybook children. Billy, can you tell us about storybook children, which you recorded with Judy uh, Clay? For at its time, completely groundbreaking, being the first interracial love song. Yeah, it wasn't intended uh, that way. It was just, see, the Barbara Lewis record got, got us entree to the great Jerry Wexler, who was the head of Atlantic Records. And so we thought, well, Jerry likes us. He, you know, he had invited us to the Barbara Lewis session. Let's write a duet, and maybe we get a couple of Atlantic artists to record it, which would be great. So we recorded it and, uh, as a demo. And we took it to Jerry and he pounded his fist on the desk and he said, man, that's a smash. Get rid of the girl. And we'll record you on Atlantic Records. So to me, to me this was just a dream come true because Atlantic was my favorite label. And I already had it, my name on the Atlantic label in little tiny letters on the Barbara Lewis record. Now I was going to have my name on a, in bigger letters on Atlantic <laughs> So we, I was friendly with uh, Patty LaBelle and the Bluebells. Uh, we, we worked at a club every Friday and Saturday night where we did two dance sets and then we would do two 
we would back uh, hit record acts for two shows. Uh, and all the hit record acts of the day came to that club and played, and we were the backup band. So Patty and the Bluebells came up very often, and we played with them. And their music is very, very difficult. You know, Danny Boy and D-flat, that old Irish song, <laughs> or You'll Never Walk Alone and Be Natural. You know, I mean, and they said, and they didn't have a guitar player or anybody. We just had to read the music. And, but my guys could read. So uh, they always said to us, oh, man, there's only two bands in, 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 that can play our music, you and, and the magnificent men from uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So, I, so that made, made for a friendship. Well, one of the girls in the group had a deeper voice that I thought would blend well with mine. Nona Hendricks was her name. So Nona and I recorded Storybook Children. And then their manager got into the act, and he was afraid that if she and I had a hit, that, that the group would break up. And, of course, Patty and the other girls were all for it because they said, no, no, you don't understand, Mr. Montague. If Billy and Nona have a hit, then he can be our guitar player, and somebody, we'll have somebody that can play our music, and, uh, and, and then you can get more money for the act. Billy and Nona can do their hit, and we can do ours, and it'll be great. And he didn't see it that way. <laughs> so then we had to audition. Uh, we had to audition about 20 more girls. And they all sounded like they should be singing uh, Stephen Sondheim songs, you know, Broadway songs. None of them worked. And then finally, we were about to give up. And Wexler called up. He said, listen, we got this girl now called Judy Clay. She's a cousin of Dion Warwick and Dee Dee Warwick and Sissy Houston. Uh, why don't you take, take a listen to her? So she came in to the office and she looked like she was about 14 months pregnant <laughs> and she had a chip on her shoulder the size of Wyoming because she was bitter because all the others in her family had, had already made hit records and she hadn't yet, but she was a great singer and she sounded great on our song. So after she left, they said, well, what do you think? I mean, she sings great, but can you think you can handle that attitude? I said, I got a sister like that, so I know how to, how to handle her. <laughs> and Judy and I became friends for the rest of her life. Mm. Uh, and I, in fact, I was the only one that could get along with her. <laughs> you know, she just was a, she was quite a, a, a uh, she could be difficult, you know, but <laughs> not with me. She, she loved me and I, I loved her. She was just great. And her sister, you know, Sylvia, was in the Sweet Inspirations. And if you see some of those uh, Elvis in Las Vegas movies, you'll see Elvis clowning around with uh, Sylvia and, and the other Sweet Inspirations. And, and Sylvia sounded almost exactly like Judy. In fact, there's a couple of Sweet Inspirations records, the titles of which escape me at the moment, uh, where Sylvia takes the lead rather than Sissy. And, uh, and you, you would swear it was Judy Clay singing. I've really got the feeling that I'll love you for a long, long time. I felt it from the moment we met, you didn't ask me my sign.
Billy, through the 70s, you were still writing and recording. No major successes until the great Dolly Parton had a number one hit song with I Really Got That Feeling. What was the feeling, Billy, of being number one? <laughs> oh, it was thrilling, especially because I hadn't had a hit record in nine years. You know, it was the early 70s was really a terrible time for me career-wise because uh, the culture in America had changed and the music had changed drastically. And I, I just couldn't fit, figure out a way how to fit in. Yeah. You know, I was what was then known as a blue-eyed soul singer. And there was no place for somebody like me anymore. And what was I going to do? I couldn't go disco and I couldn't sing uh, wimpy singer-songwriter songs. You know, there's just... I, I couldn't figure out how to fit. And uh, I, I was at, at one of the low points of my career. I was working at a Holiday Inn with my band, or Ramada Inn. And uh, on a job like that, you work for two weeks. And on weekends, you get a bit of a crowd. But during the week, you're playing to three businessmen <laughs> who are mad at you because the girl, the waitresses are looking at you instead of them. So, so after the show one weeknight, waitress comes over to me, says, that fellow over there with his wife would like a word with you. So I go over and there's this guy with this great big head and these crazy eyes and uh, a very loud type wife with flaming red hair and dressed in 70s garb. And, and he puts his hand out to me, says, I'm L. L. Russell Brown. I wrote Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. <laughs> it was a gigantic, gigantic hit, you know, and I'm, I'm like not feeling so good about myself as it was. And I said, I said, well, well very good for you. You know, I'm happy. He said, you know, Vera, you're one of the great singers of our time. You're a great, great songwriter, but you never make any money said, me, I make a lot of money, and nobody respects me the way they respect you. I said, what do you say to a guy like that? You know? <laughs> I, I just was silent for a minute. He says, you know, I had an idea while I was watching you up on stage. He says, we ought to write together. I could teach you how to make money, and you could teach, teach me how to get respect. <laughs> and so I started going over to his house in the afternoons. And we wrote a lot of songs. The fellow had great energy, you know. I mean, sometimes we'd write two, three songs a day, which for me was unheard of. And so one day, like everyone else that does something well, he wanted to do something else. And he wanted to be a record producer. So he, he got a job producing Nancy Sinatra. This was after her big success with Boots Are Made for Walking had passed. And so he said, listen, I got to go pick my wife up at the beauty parlor. Why don't you start a song and, and we'll finish it when I get back. So I said, what do I write for Nancy Sinatra? My God. Oh, she has this famous father. <laughs> so I write some lines like, I love my daddy, but it really don't matter what my daddy might say, you know, thinking of Frank. And I finished the song before Larry got back. And uh, he, he, I played it for him. He loved it. He said, oh, my goodness. He said, that's a number one song if I ever heard one. He said, you, 
he said, I'm going to play it for Nancy. So the next day he plays it for her. She hated it. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like the song at all. And uh, so Larry got mad. He said, he said, he said, she just robbed herself and me of a number one record. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and he said, you got to do something with this song just to prove me right. You know? So I, I had this friend, Crazy Joe was his name. He had a little country band up in Connecticut. And he had a girl singer and she had a nice voice. So I taught her the song and we took her in the studio, but she was lazy and she didn't really learn it very well. And everywhere we took the, the, the record, they said, love the song, hate the girl. Love the song, hate that girl. So now I was getting depressed, you know, and finally the last guy on my list, a fellow named Charlie Koppelman was his name. And uh, I played him. He said, love the song, hate the girl, but we're recording Dolly Parton next week. Give me the song for Dolly and I'll guarantee it'll be the single. I said, put it in writing, Charlie, because I didn't trust him. <laughs> and, and give me some money. So I thought he'd give me about you know, $200. And I didn't even look at the, he, he had his girl write a check and put it in an envelope. And I'm going down in the elevator. I didn't bother to look at it and see how much money it was. And I had my little girlfriend with me. We're going down in the elevator and she couldn't wait. She grabbed the envelope from my hand. She opened it up. She says, holy, mm, baby. He gave you $2,500, which was a fortune in 1978, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I said, wow, we're going to go to dinner tonight, sweetie, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and, you know, when the record came out, man, boom. By that time, I had gotten, uh, my old manager had come back in the picture from California. And he said, look, I'm broke. He said, I need to make a deal. He said, why don't you come? He said, let me see if I can send me some songs and, and let me see if I can get you a deal. So he got me a publishing deal with Warner Brothers. And uh, so I took every, put everything I owned in my car and I'm driving out to California from New York. Every 20 minutes, I'm hearing my, I really got the feeling. Every 20 minutes, Dolly singing to me in my car. I said, oh my goodness, I'm back in show business again. <laughs> You know? was, was was that a good feeling? <laughs> oh my God, what a good feeling it was! You know, it, it, it was like because before that, I was starting to say, "What else am I going to do with my life?" You know, right. I, I I don't know anything but music. So, uh, but the, the day I hit California, it was number one. Hey, how's it going? Fine. Excuse me. Something wrong? No, nothing wrong. Well, listen, why, why don't you take a break? Let's dance. No, I can't. I have to make sure there's enough punch available. <laughs> Ellen, there are 8,000 cups of punch here. Please, Alex, I don't want to dance. Why not? Because I just don't. Billy, we can't talk to Billy Vera without talking about the song that just keeps on giving. The brilliant at this moment. Although released in 81, received little fanfare until a producer decided to put it in the biggest TV show in the world at that time in the 80s. 
family toys. How did this come about? You know, uh, I, I, one day I got a phone call, and it, it had been five years since the first time at this moment was out. And uh, f- my phone rings one afternoon. He said, my name is Michael Whitehorn. I produce and write a show called Family Ties. And we were at the club the other night, and we heard you sing a song that we thought would be perfect for an episode that I wrote uh, where Michael J. Fox meets the love of his life. So I, and he couldn't think of the title. <laughs> and nobody ever remembers the title properly. So I knew that it was at this moment. I hummed a few bars of it for him. And he said, yes, that's the one. So we did it. He actually had, he had us come in and re-record it because the, the, the original recording is live. So, you know, you can't have a guy yell, hey, sing it, Billy, in the middle of the love scene. So there had to be no audience. So we did that. And uh, boy, I got a bag of mail. You know, I had had I had had songs on television shows before, but usually nobody notices them. They're just you make a few dollars and that's the end of it. But this time I got mail. I said, wow, maybe this song has something. Uh, let me see if I can, you know, get a record company to let me record it all over again. And nobody was interested. Nobody. And finally, I was having lunch. Uh, uh, my friend Richard Foos, who owned it, uh, Rhino Records, the great reissue label, the equivalent of Ace Records in London. And uh, we have these, these periodic lunches where we have mock arguments about Whose version of Mustang Sally is the best? You know, you know, Wilson Pickett, the Rascals, or Mac Rice's original. You know, and so at, at one of these lunches, I, I told him the story about the, at this moment on Family Ties. I said, I said, Richard, how many records do you need to sell to break even? He said, Well, we have low overhead at our company, and a couple of thousand. I said. What if I guarantee you 2,000 sales? I could sell them in the clubs if I have to. And, and you put out a, a, a record on at this moment. And you said, I'll, I'll do better than that. I'll, you, you compile a, an album of your best songs for that record company you were with before. And I'll put out an album and a single. And he only did this because he liked me. You know, he, he'll tell you to this day, that he never thought he'd make a nickel off of it, you know, because they're not in that business of contemporary records. And they put out crazy records. So by the time they get it out, we miss the rerun. And then the next season, when the girl breaks up with Michael J. Fox, the story of the song, Boy Loses Girl, matches, now matches the story of the, of the episode, and the, you know, Boy Loses Girl. So uh, this time, when they played the song, people started calling up NBC. They told us that it was the most phone calls and inquiries that they've ever had in the history of NBC. People started calling radio stations and record stores. Who is this singer? Where can we get the record? You know, all that. And without any promotion, without any payola, (laughs) <laughs> this thing takes us, it's that unheard of thing that never happens in the 
record business, it was a grassroots hit. And uh, it leapt over Madonna, leapt over Bon Jovi, all these people, and finally hit number one. And it hit number one, it did, with a bullet. And how did it feel, like people probably describing you who didn't know of your career, this new act, Billy Berry, number yes. one in his 40s. How did that sit with you? I was just happy. You know, a funny thing happens when you have a real, a real hit. Your phone starts ringing at six o'clock in the morning and it doesn't stop until two o'clock the next morning. Everybody wants a piece of you. You know, girls that turned you down for dates suddenly, oh, you remember me, Billy? You know, relatives you didn't know you had <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. start calling you. And at that time, I was a free agent, as they call it in the sports business. In other words, I was not signed. I had no contract with any record company or any manager, any agent. I had a handshake deal with my, my agent. So now everybody wanted a piece of that. I started getting calls from all the major record companies when the word got out that I was a free agent. And, uh, you know, so I ended up going with Capitol Records because Rhino knew that they couldn't really sustain uh, that kind of success on a, on a regular basis. So I, it, they weren't angry that I went elsewhere. But, um, yeah, Billy, then the movies came, you know, started doing movies. Billy, at the time of the song, uh, and that, it was, was it hard to keep your feet on the ground, you know, keep yourself grounded when you have all these people coming chasing you? Not at all. I, I, I'm a professional, you know, and, and I, I've been in show business all my life. So, you know, I, 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 I was... I was well-grounded always. And, yeah. and I always knew that my, my mother and father taught me that professionalism was really the main thing in show business to success. So, and but you, do, you, do, you, do you still uh, respect the longevity of this record? It's still well-loved. I don't know if you're familiar with these YouTube videos where people will watch a song for the first time. Almost I every reaction, them. people will cry watching your videos yeah some of them are really funny <laughs> you know they're hilarious uh, I, I just i yeah I, I just started seeing those a few months ago <laughs> yeah. you know I, I love them yeah brilliant and we have to ask you like when you sing that song it tears the heart down me every time like it's obviously written with deep meaning was it based on personal experiences you know i generally I don't write autobiographical songs because my, my attitude is autobiography is for amateurs. But uh, in this case, usually what I do, my process is I might take something from a book I was reading or a television show I watched or a story that you told me about your pathetic love life, you know, or <laughs> my own pathetic love life. And I mix them all up like a, like a soup, like a gumbo or a stew. You know, and, and then what comes out is is something uh, different, but influenced by all those things. In this case, it was slightly different. I had just started, I was 33 years old, still living at my mother's house like some loser musician <laughs> and at 33 years old. And I, 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 I met this beautiful 20-year-old college girl, and uh, we fell in love. 
And uh, she, she, in the beginning, she told me a story about breaking up with her previous boyfriend and how crushed he was and how it, it destroyed him. You know, 20 year olds can be a bit narcissistic <laughs> in case you've never noticed. <laughs> but, you know, she was so beautiful and so intelligent. It was like it was like the relationship was like Bogart and Bacall. You know, I mm. mean, it was really that's she was very much like a young Lauren Bacall. And I suppose I was something like a, a Humphrey Bogart in the relationship. Anyway. She's telling me all this about her boy, her ex-boyfriend, and I sat at my mother's piano, and I wrote two-thirds of the song from what I perceived as his point of view. So, but I couldn't finish it. I couldn't figure out how to end the song until a year later when she broke up with me and crushed me. <laughs> and then that last verse that you love so much that always makes you cry. That's where that came from. What did you think I would do at this moment when you're standing there before me with tears in your eyes? Try to tell me that you found you another and that you just don't love me no more Billy, I have to tell you my introduction to the song I've got a friend, Ian Kenna that I grew up with and at this moment is his all-time favourite and every time he had a beer in him whether it was 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning if there was a lull in the party you, we would just hear, you know, what would, and he would, he would go and he would sing the whole thing every time. I must've heard him singing that song a hundred times. Oh. It, it, it means something to, different to everybody. Yes. But other than Ian Kenna in Ireland and Dublin singing that song, there've been many groups and singers and artists who have taken that song and put their own spin on it. Tom Jones, uh, Jimmy Fallon, Mike Bublé. Love, I love Jimmy Fallon's version. Yeah. Well, my, my question is, of all of the different versions of that song, I know, I mean, if someone has a hit with it, you get a check. But what is your favorite version of that song? Well, fiscally, <laughs> I love Michael Blaze's version. And, and, and he actually did a pretty good job. You know, most people uh, over-sing it. You know, they go over the top, uh, too emotional. And, my attitude is you should let the song do the work for you. You know, just tell the story, dude. <laughs> you know? And, and, uh, and Buble, Buble does a good job, I, I have to say. Um, I, I, as much as I love Tom Jones, I felt he was a bit over the top for my taste. Uh, awesome. I, I, loved, um, I loved Rita Coolidge's version. You know, she was very simple. Um, uh, Frida Payne did a nice job on it. Um, who else? Oh, there's a fellow, a soul singer. Might not be that well known. He's not that well known here. <laughs> but uh, he, he's great. He did a, he, his name is um, Will Downing. I don't know if you've ever heard of Will Downing. Huh. He doesn't try to copy my version. 
he 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 does what a what a good cover artist should do. He makes it his own. I just love his version. I think his is my favorite. Great. However, one of my favorite all-time singers who who might be a little early for you guys. I love Arthur Prysock. Do you know who he is? No. Arthur Prysock was one of those deep Billy Eckstein kind of vote voices. You know, everybody knows how the story goes. That kind of voice. And I just, I love his singing. He, he, he had the, the luxury of having a great songwriter uh, in his band leader, Buddy Johnson. And uh, Buddy Johnson's biggest song is Since I Fell For You, and, which his sister Ella sang. Uh, originally but uh he wrote some great songs for arthur so when arthur cut it i was just thrilled but sadly by that time arthur was getting up there in years and uh, he, he didn't really have the, the oomph that he once had but I, I i have to say will downing's version i think is my favorite hey buddy can i help you hello buckaroo banzai you a messenger? What you got here? No, no, wait a minute. I need to see Buckaroo Banzai in person. My name is John Parker. Identify yourself, no? Blue Blazer regular, Pinky Carruthers. Sorry, John, everybody needs to see Buckaroo. Later. Can you tell us how you got into movies and TV? Well, that's, that, that's largely, um, largely thanks to Chip Taylor's brother, John Boyd. Uh, when I when I first came to California, uh, we got a job at the famous Troubadour nightclub at, every Monday night at midnight, and uh, we started out. Uh, you know, that's the worst night of the week, the worst hour. I figured, who's going to come? Within two weeks, it was lines around the block. You know, we we because there was this group called the Knack. If you remember them, Moisharana. Mm-hmm. Moisharana. Yeah. Well, all the record companies were trying to sign acts that were four-piece bands, guitar bands. And here we were, four saxophones, <laughs> you know, a, a pedal steel guitar. And, you know, we, we were nothing like what the record companies wanted at that time. But, every, but all the record company guys used to come see us, you know, but they wouldn't sign us. <laughs> they think we were commercial. Anyway, one night in walks John with his acting teacher, David Proval who you may remember from The Sopranos, and he was also in uh, Mean Streets. Uh, he played the bartender in Mean Streets. Great acting teacher. Anyway, after the show, they come up to the dressing room, and John said, you know, Billy, I've known, I've known you for all these years. He said, I haven't seen you sing in a long time. He said, he said, you do something that other singers don't do. I said, what's that, John? He said, well, you know how other singers, they sing at an audience. You know, they, 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 don't, they don't work from the inside out. You know, it's all, hey, how you doing, L.A.? You know, all that crap. <laughs> says, you, he says, you're, you're the most honest singer I've ever heard. He said, uh, he, he said you, you, you know, you, you do what we do in our, in our acting class, you know. He said, you ought to come to David's class. I said, John, I don't want to be an actor. I'm not good looking enough. You know, he says, he says, no, you could, you, you could be a great actor. man." He said, 
take away that guitar, take away that microphone, take away the songs and have you just say words. He said, he said, I'm, I know you'd be great. And John Boyd is one of the great actors of all time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he, he, he could be very persuasive. <laughs> and so he drags me down there one night and I, I, against my will, I might add, and there's two guys up on stage doing the, the, this exercise called the repeat exercise where it starts out where uh, you, you, you look at the other person, right? And you say, uh, you have a black shirt. I have a black shirt. You're wearing a black shirt. I'm wearing a black shirt. You uh, have gray pants. I have gray pants. All this stuff until finally the director tells you to, to switch it to what do you feel? And so then the, the exercise goes, uh, you make me feel uh, nervous. I make you feel nervous. You make me, you make me want to laugh. I make you want to laugh. And it goes on and on. And, and all these emotions come up. And then it becomes like a painter's palette, you know, with, the, with all the colors on there. They're now, with that exercise, these colors are all available to you to use when you get a script in front of you. Uh, I guess you understand this. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, I'm just watching the first time I'm there. And there's two guys up there. One of them was this guy, Chris Mulkey. And the other guy was this guy, Rocky Estreveria, who had escaped from Cuba with his, with the, with his friend, Andy Garcia. <laughs> They'd escaped from Castro and all that, you know. And, uh, and Rocky became Stephen Bauer, who... When, I don't know if you saw this in, in Ireland, but there was a great show that John was on the last few years called Ray Donovan. Yeah. It's about... He played you know, Avi. Yes. And, 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 and Stephen Bauer was, you know, uh, the sidekick, uh, the Israeli sidekick, when in reality he's Cuban. <laughs> anyway, so I'm watching these two guys. I said, wow, this is not bullshit. Man. These guys are really doing something honest on that stage. Well, maybe I could do that after all. Well, I, I didn't get up for about till about the third or fourth time I came to the class. But it and it took me a while to get it. And then I became, I think, pretty good. And but you appeared in an iconic movie. Um, Bukaru Bonza. Yeah. And honestly, Wait, hold, had hold on, hold on. Bukaru Bonza across the fifth dimension. Okay. Fifth dimension for <laughs> the adventures of Bukaru Bonza. The adventures of Bukaru Bonza. Um, and I got a new lease of life with Ready Player One. Uh, how was that experience shooting that? Well, that was my first movie. I had done a couple of television shows before that, but it was my first movie. And I, I and I, again, I had the luxury of a really good young director uh, named Rick Richter. And, uh, and he said, look, he'd seen me on stage with my band. He said, I love the way you improvise. He said, I, I want to use that in the movie. He said, uh, he said, but just, just let me know ahead of time, if you can, where you're going to stand so that I can have the camera follow you, <laughs> you know? And he pretty much let me have my way. You know, I, I, I did the, I did the words on the page, but I, I didn't, I didn't, he didn't direct me, you know, and, uh, and it, it was really helpful. Uh, there was this one scene that, you know, the, the studio made them cut a half hour out of the movie because they wanted to play it. They thought it was going to be this big hit. 
and and they they wanted it to play like five times a day in the theaters. It wasn't a big hit. Anyway, there was this one scene at the end where where we're beating up the bad guys from the other planet, and uh, and, and uh, so he said, I, "I want you to have this scene to yourself." He said, "You got any ideas?" I said, "Well, you know, my name is Pinky, you know, and we never explain." why I'm called Pinky. I said, you know, how about if I have this thing, this little scene where there's, there was this round balls about this big candy called, called pink, uh, what were they called? Pink cones or something like that. I said, what if, because remember, sugar was the thing that killed the bad guys. <laughs> and so what so true we, no, no no the opposite of killed them it, it, it's what they feed on that's what <laughs> sugar so i said what if you put one of those snow cones in the guy's pocket and i'm slapping him around a little bit at the end and while i'm feeling feeling him up for for weapons i find this pink snow cone and i and it reminds me of my grandmother who used who named me pinky <laughs> <laughs> and I start to cry. <laughs> and so he said, all he said was, can you cry in one take? <laughs> I said, yeah, I'll get there, man. You know, <laughs> I can so, get there. <laughs> and it became a cult success on video, didn't it? It grew legs. Yeah, well, it, video, grew, it grew legs with uh, Peter Weller, Robocop. I think once Robocop um, came out over here, definitely in Ireland. Yeah, uh, people sought out other films by Peter Weller and definitely Bookaroo Bonsai. Like, and uh, such an eclectic cast. I mean, I think Jeff Goldblum was in there somewhere as well. Like, Goldblum was in there. We our, our trailers were right next to each other, so we were hanging out. Christopher Lloyd, mm. uh, John Lithgow, wow. Barkin. I mean, everybody that was in that movie, uh, Clancy Brown. Everybody that was in that movie went somewhere <laughs> afterwards. They signed us up. They thought it was going to be such a hit. They signed us up for five sequels. <laughs> yeah. They, they, do they do you remember, was, Billy, what was the name of Bookaroo Bonsai's band? The uh, Hong Kong Cavaliers. <laughs> right? Yeah. I get people, I get as many people writing to me online about <laughs> Bookaroo Bonsai than anything I've ever done in my life. Well, have you ever been approached to do the circuit? You know, these fan, what these things called where people go to these uh, these fans on things. Conventions, yeah. Comic-Con, yeah, I've done a couple of those, yeah. I did one with Peter and uh, and, uh, 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 Pepe Serna, who was also in the movie. Uh, Bill, Bill, um, the great jazz singer. Um, I'm having an old man moment, I'm sorry. (laughs) Bill, oh. Don't worry about it, Billy. It'll come, to you. It'll, it'll come to you at six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, you know. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. Bobby Krieger, guitar player. John Densmore. Percussionist, 22 years old. Far out. Uh, Pamela Morrison, ornament. Raymond Daniel Manzarek, 121239, position. Name, occupation? Uh, Jim. You know, today this guy's a
You've appeared in lots of TV and movies, but we want to ask you one of our favorite bands is The Doors, and you played the Miami promoter of that famous or infamous concert where Jim Morrison uh, allegedly exposed himself. What are your memories of shooting with Stone and that whole scene? It looks chaotic. It was very chaotic. Um, the, the actor that played Jim Morrison, uh, he was in character day and night. He well, went home in character, and, and I think it drove him a little nuts. <laughs> but uh, Oliver Stone, you know, was the great director, and uh, he again pretty much let me go my own way. Uh, there's this one scene where I get into an argument with the Doors manager. Uh, and uh, he said, look, his only direction was, he said, have no mercy on this kid. You know, he said, go. I said, he said, take it as far as you want. So I, am I allowed to curse on here? Go for it. Say whatever you want, Billy. <laughs> so, <laughs> good. <laughs> so I, I I didn't hit him I, I, physically, but I beat him up emotionally. I, I, I practically made the poor kid cry. I called him 18 different kinds of motherfucker, <laughs> punk ass bitch, you know. <laughs> and and you know the scene went on. Oliver Stone liked it so much he he let the scene go on and on and on and on much more than he needed, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm waiting for him to go to say cut, you know, and he wouldn't go cut. So I just kept getting, you know, meaner and meaner to this poor kid. But, but you know, you as, as an actor, you can't feel sorry for him. You got to really believe what you're doing to make it real, you know. And, uh, and he, I can see the tears come to his eyes. And it was, so it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Billy, of all the people who've recorded your songs, your new version of the song Stand By Me is just amazing. Can you tell us what made you decide to cover that particular song? That was a, you know, pure happenstance. Um, I, I was hired to do a show at my old high school in New York uh, last June. And uh, I, we had this beautiful theater. Now, Alan Alda and John Voigt had gone to my high school. So, it was well known for their theatrics. A beautiful stage, beautiful theater, seated a thousand people. So we sold out. You know, I saw people, I graduated high school 60 years ago, dude. <laughs> and I saw people I hadn't seen since then. And it was wonderful, wonderful experience. Well, about a month or so before the show, the promoter had me do a radio interview with some idiot disc jockey. <laughs> and he was going to be the MC. And I said to myself, I cannot let this guy introduce me. He's just going to screw it all up. And uh, so I asked my friend Larry Chance. I don't know, were the Earls popular in Ireland? Uh, yeah. They were in a group. Well, Larry, the lead singer, is a dear friend of mine for, for all those years, that many years. And, 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 you know, he thinks I'm his idol. You know? So I said, I called him up. I said, Larry, I said, if you're not working that night, would you do me a favor and introduce me? I, I can't let this idiot introduce me. He said, yeah, man, anything for you. So he comes and he introduces me 
flowery, beautiful, make me sound like I'm Elvis, you know, whoever. <laughs> and so I, when I finish my show for the encore, I bring Larry out and we do this impromptu version of Stand By Me, you know, just like the regular way. Dum, 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 dum. And the audience loved it and, and they, they uh, gave us a standing ovation. So a few days later, he called me up and said, you know, I cut this track uh, on standby me. Uh, how about you, you join me and we'll make it a duet? I said, well, let me, let me hear the track. You know, I, I was not too anxious to do another, yet another version of standby me that's trying to ape our friend, Benny King. Mm -hmm. Well, I took one listen to this track. I said, my God, it sounds like Count Basie. I said, this is a fabulous track. You bet I'll be on it. I said, send me, send it to me. So I sent it. I went over to my saxophone player's apartment and put my voice on the track. And I, I did about four takes. And I called Larry. I said, look, I'm sending you four takes. Use what you want of me. And uh, you know, put, put me where you want. Put you where you want. It's your record. And, and, it, and it came out really nice, you know? That's brilliant. It, it only came out about four days ago, and already mm. radio stations playing it all over the country. You know, Billy, uh, I, I, I was doing a bit of work, and I pressed play, and I was like, whoa. Caught right? me immediately. Caught me immediately. It's a totally different. And I've always said, if you're going to sing somebody else's song, make it your own, man. Because the world doesn't need another version that's of a great version. When the night has come, oh, and the land is dark, and the moon is the only light we'll see. No, I won't be afraid. I What was better, winning a Grammy or getting your star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? Oh, I don't know. They're kind of equal. You know, I, I've always been a late bloomer. You know, I got my first number one record years after my friends did. I mean, decades after. I got my, my Grammy many years after my friends got theirs. And... uh not many of my friends got a star, so I. <laughs> but still, I was I wasn't a young man when I got that. Uh, they were both thrilling. The star was unexpected, totally unexpected. Uh, I had been nominated for Grammys four times, uh, but the the star that came about. The actress uh, Angie Dickinson was a, a fan of of mine, and. Uh, when she got her star, she said, well, I will only accept it if I can nominate Billy Barra. Uh, and the, pro the process is someone nominates you, uh, the, the, the city council or whatever it is of Hollywood, the city of Hollywood votes on all the nominations. And, and if they say you get one, you get one. So I, I was, in fact, I was a little nervous about about accepting it not about accepting it but about getting it uh because i said how many great people 
have not gotten a star? How many much, 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 much more famous people have not gotten star? People are going to say, why him? You know, <laughs> you know, Chuck Berry doesn't have a star. Why Billy Vera? And so she, she very patiently sat me down. She said, listen, she said, it's, it's not totally fame is why a person gets a star. It's about what their fame has done for the city of Hollywood. And she said, look at you. You've worked in nightclubs in Hollywood. You've worked in radio. You've worked in television. You've worked in movies. You've made records in Hollywood. All, all of your career in Hollywood has, has, has done what to honor the city of Hollywood. That's why they voted you. You, you definitely deserve it. So I felt a little bitter about it. And, and as it turns out, uh, what I feared didn't happen. You know, uh, the, the, I was afraid people would make fun of me. You know, <laughs> it didn't happen. People were kind of kind of proud of me. Do you ever take a stroll down building this walk by your name and have a little glance? Well, you know, it's right uh, just one door up from Capitol Records. So um, when I because they ask you where you want it. I said, I had just signed with Capitol Records. Uh, so I said, can you get as close to Capitol Records as possible? You know, so so that Capitol will remember that I'm on the label. <laughs> you know, and then, then to, to introduce me, I, the, the president of Capitol signed me. His name was Joe Smith. And he was a very well-known guy in the music business. And he had been a, a, a famous disc jockey many in the 50s. And he was well known as an irreverent uh, MC, and I knew that that would take the seriousness off me getting the star. And that, and if he made fun of me, uh, then then nobody else could. That was my that was my strategy. So he comes out there on the microphone. He said, "Well." What the hell do I say about Billy Vera? Hmm. Billy Vera gets a hit record every 20 years, whether he needs one or not. <laughs> and everybody cracked up. You know, I cracked up. And uh, it, was, it was just the perfect, perfect introduction, you know, uh, for, the, for my purposes. And, uh, and, and so it was a pretty great day. You know. Billy... Of all your accolades or all your strings to your bow, you're also a renowned music historian. And I've written books on the history of rock and roll or music, including your memoir, Harlem to Hollywood. What prompted you to, to put your, your life on the page? Well, I had written a lot of articles um, about, you know, various old time artists, a lot of dead artists people that I loved and enjoyed uh, quite a few. There's a magazine in London called uh, uh, Blues and Rhythm. And I, I write a lot for them. And people were always asking me, well, well, you tell so many great stories. Why don't you, why don't you write a memoir? And I said, oh, man, I don't know. Nobody's interested in me. And in fact, my attorney, <laughs> uh, he, he hooked me up with a, a couple of uh, uh, book agents 
and I had lunch with this one and that lunch with that one. And they all said, well, you're not a big enough name, you know, to, to, to sell to a publisher. So finally, I said, well, I'm just going to write it, you know, see what happens. So I wrote it and, uh, you know, we sent it around to a couple of publishers and we got one that took it. Uh, a good publisher, in fact. Uh, so it came out and, you know, it, it, it was very well received, you know. Uh, in fact, one of the reviewers for the Wall Street Journal, he had, he, he really did his research and he researched the girl that I wrote the song for. Unfortunately, she had passed away the year before. She had gone on to a very good life. She married a brain surgeon and, uh, and, and, and sadly, she died from some sort of a brain malady, uh, but it was it, it was that was really a cool thing to me. And anyway, so that's how that got. And then from there, uh, these guys wanted to do a, a documentary based on my book, also called Harlem to Hollywood. The reason I named it Harlem to Hollywood is because I first got known. Uh, from when Judy Clay and I performed at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. And, uh, and, and so I first became popular uh, in, in, in the black community, you know, before white people discovered it. Uh, in fact, when we, when we first, the record was already a hit, Storybook Children we're talking about now, it was already a hit uh, before anybody saw our picture. And so nobody knew I was white. And so we, we get up. And in those days, the Apollo was five shows a day, a seven-day week. That was you know, that's a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work. Uh, Billy, what's next? Well, next, to, uh, hoping that uh, Stand By Me does something, you know. It's, it's getting a lot of good airplay on the radio already. And, and a lot of press brilliant uh, yeah so let's see if a, it'll be it'll be pretty cool if a couple of old geezers like us get a hit record but it's not unknown you remember the great jimmy durante yeah he had a number one record when he was i think 90 you know he did oh it's a long long time from may to december <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was a hit in the rest of the world, but it was big in, in America. Yeah, you can't be a sentiment for getting a good number one. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Billy, we're going to wrap with this question we ask all our guests. It's last orders in the bar. You're down to your last dollar. It's a jukebox in the corner. One dollar, one song. What do you play out to Billy Vera? Well, there's a couple of them. You know, uh, the one that people seem to really love is one that I recorded first, and then Lou Rawls recorded it, uh, one, of, one of the four albums I produced on him. Uh, it's, it's called If I Were a Magician. And, and uh, I think it's appropriate for this show because when Larry Brown and I were writing it, my idea was I wanted to write a combination of Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come and Danny Boy, the great Irish war song. Well, uh, melodically. So this is for my 
my ancestors and well Irish. Billy Vera that's the song that we're going to play out on so from Derek Kieran, Mark our editor Billy Vera thanks for taking the time out of your day to sit and chat with us oh we, we should mention Billy uh, for our European listeners from Harlem to Hollywood is available on Amazon Prime but only in the US so for our US listeners get yourself onto Amazon Prime and have a look at that documentary Billy Vera thank you very much well thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure oh I wish you loved me like you loved me long ago it was early in the summertime you said you loved me so the chestnut trees the summer breeze they whispered soft and low and if i could bring you back again i'd never let you go 